Um, the Nigerian police were set up by the British colonial authorities. And the police were set up not to protect the population, but rather to protect the regime. Hello and welcome to the Hopkins Podcast on Foreign Affairs. My name is Amanda Yun, and I am joined by my co-hosts Julia Ahn and Fabiana Corsi-Mendez. Today, we'll be talking about the NSARS movement in Nigeria. In October 2020, protests erupted across the country against the Special Anti-Robbery Squad, mirroring the American Black Lives Matter movement. Though these protests are a new event, civil unrest and the issue of government-sanctioned violence have long existed in Nigeria since its colonization. To explain the hashtag NSARS movement and provide some historical context as to these events, we are joined by Ambassador John Campbell. John Campbell is the Ralph Bunch Senior Fellow for Africa Policy Studies at the Council on Foreign Relations. He's the author of the upcoming book, Nigeria and the Nation State, Rethinking Diplomacy with the Post-Colonial World, set for publication in December 2020 and available on Amazon. Ambassador Campbell served as a U.S. Department of State Foreign Service Officer and has served twice in Nigeria as political counselor and as ambassador. We hope you enjoy this episode of the Hopkins Podcast on Foreign Affairs. Ambassador Campbell, thank you so much for coming on our podcast today. My pleasure to be with you. Can you start by providing our listeners with some context as to the recent protests in Nigeria? Um, What does SARS stand for? How did these protests begin? And what has been the size and scope of them? Um, SARS, uh, Special Armed Robbery Squad, Uh, It is a unit of the Nigerian police, and here I should interject that the Nigerian police is a national police force. It's like a gendarmerie uh, in France. Uh, Local policing um, does not exist in Nigeria. Uh, SARS was set up uh, now uh, more than 20 years ago. Uh, to respond to a wave of robberies. Uh, it, its critics maintain it has long operated without transparency and often extra-legally. Uh, however, views of SARS are not as uniform as the Western media often represents. SARS is widely hated in the southern part of the country, the more developed part of the country, the part of the country that is predominantly Christian. But it is not viewed with the same kind of antipathy in the northern part of the country, which is predominantly Muslim. The SARS demonstrations um, uh, started, uh, and were mostly confined actually, uh, to Lagos a city with 22 million people, the heart of uh, Nigeria's modern economy. Further, initially at least, the demonstrators were relatively young, 18 to 24. Many of them were photographed with cell phones and with laptops. In effect, what that means is that they were, uh, in a Nigerian context, relatively privileged. Uh, and relations between a, the relatively privileged, relatively westernized, relatively cosmopolitan young people and SARS, particularly in Lagos, have not been good for a long time. 
uh, plenty of reports of SARS beating people up uh, and even extrajudicial killings. Um, I think one thing that we want to specifically know is, like, was there a specific event or moment um, that started these specific protests? Uh, yes, there um, was, yes, there was. There and was. what have been the demands of these protests? Yeah, there was. Um, there was the apparent murder by SARS uh, um, of a young person, not actually in Lagos, rather um, a different southern Nigerian city. So that in that sense, there are strong similarities between the outbreak of the SARS protests and the Black Lives Matter protests um, in the United States. And in fact, I would go further than that. Uh, I would say that the Nigerian protesters very much were looking over their shoulders uh, at the Black Lives Matter protests in the United States. And they also received considerable support at least rhetorical support from the Nigerian diaspora living in the United States. In terms of what they were demanding, they were demanding the dissolution of SARS, uh, which uh, President Buhari has agreed to do. However, uh, numerous Nigerian governments in the past have agreed to disband SARS and it's never happened. Uh, So what people are questioning now is whether SARS really will be disbanded uh, or will it simply continue on, but under a different name? That remains to be seen. So another question, and you brought up the Black Lives Matter movement, and this is a question that's been posed with regards to those protests. But a question that I have with regards to the SARS protests is, to what extent are these protests peaceful? And has there been an escalation of violence over time as, the, as they have begun? Um, they certainly initially started uh, as, uh, as peaceful. Um, uh, however, as the protests continued, rather like with, with the Black Lives Matter protests in the United States, uh, they attracted uh, some elements uh, that came to be involved in, uh, in looting. Uh, in terms of violence, yes, there's been a there was a significant escalation of violence uh, when units or a unit of the Nigerian army uh, uh, fired on a crowd of protesters who were peaceful uh, at a um, uh, a place called the Lekki Toll Plaza, which is just that it's a toll plaza for a for a highway leading out of Nigeria. How many have been killed is not clear. Um, Amnesty International at one point was reporting 68. Uh, My own view is that probably a great many more were killed. Uh, Normally, casualties, uh, particularly at the hands of uh, the army or the police, are multiple times uh, what are officially reported. So yes, violence did indeed increase. Um, It has now, however, subsided. Uh, just as the demonstrations have subsided. Uh, uh, why that is so uh, is, uh, is not very clear. Some commentators think they have subsided because of the harshness uh, of, the official, of the official response. Uh, normally, uh, Nigerian governments respond to um, demonstrations that they cannot control uh, by a mixture of carrot and stick. Uh, 
in other words, uh, trying to buy off the leaders while at the same time uh, uh, pursuing repressive policies. But the interesting thing about the SARS demonstrations is that there was no clearly identified uh, leadership. There was no central committee. Um, there it was no uh, charismatic leader. Uh, it was extremely diffuse. And because it was so diffuse, it was particularly difficult, at least early on, uh, for the Nigerian government to respond to. Ambassador, you mentioned earlier that this isn't the first time that the Nigerian government has promised to disband SARS. And so it seems like it's also not the first time that SARS has been criticized. And some even state that these problems of over-policing and excessive violence exist maybe in part uh, due to Nigeria's colonial history. So my question is, could you talk to our listeners a little more about um, past protest movements and maybe how we've gotten to our current state of affairs in Nigeria? Yeah, why don't we start by talking about the origin of the Nigerian police? Um, the Nigerian police were set up by the British colonial authorities. And the police were set up not to protect the population, but rather to protect the regime. And that is the way it has, uh, it has always acted. Um, a consequence of that is that the police pretty much across the board is widely hated. Uh, and most Nigerians will have as little as, uh, uh, as little contact with the police as they possibly can. Um, the police are also viewed pretty much across the board as thoroughly corrupt. Um, they maintain checkpoints, for example, to get through a checkpoint, you have to pay a small bribe. Um, on the other hand, uh, police salaries are very often in arrears. They're not very high to start with. Uh, and even if they were paid on time, they are hardly sufficient to keep body and soul together. Everybody understands this. Uh, and so there is less resentment at the um, the payment of small bribes uh, than there would be in, in other countries. However, there's an understanding of when a small bribe becomes a large one. And when that happens, there is uh, considerable resentment and even resistance. Sometimes that resentment and resistance then uh, leads to police violence. Um, and uh, essentially, you end up with a kind of, of downward spiral. Um, protests. Um, the most recent previous protests occurred in 2012 uh, when the government tried to reduce the fuel subsidy. Um, the fuel subsidy included kerosene, uh, which is what ordinary people use for, uh, for cooking. Uh, that led to nationwide protests, protests across ethnic and religious, uh, uh, religious uh, divisions. Um, the SARS protests uh, have lasted longer but have been more concentrated in the southern part of the country uh, than the previous protests were. 
the 2012 protests uh, were led by student unions uh, and labor unions. In other words, there was a clearly identifiable leadership uh, and the government was quite effective uh, in using a mixture of carrots and sticks uh, to bring those demonstrations to an end. But because there was a clear leadership, it was much easier for the government to cope with uh, than the anti-SARS demonstrations. And I just wanted to follow up also on a point that you've made. Could you clarify or elaborate a little more on why there's such a regional divide in like which um, which parts of Nigeria have more concentrated hatred towards the SARS and then also why the protests are more concentrated there as well? Um, Nigeria has some 350 different ethnic groups. Um, the, uh, the assumption is that uh, the population is evenly divided between Christians and Muslims and that therefore neither Christianity nor Islam is a minority religion. Um, however, the levels of development um, between the predominantly Muslim North and the predominantly Christian South are hugely different. Um, the British, in effect, in the North, governed through traditional Islamic structures. They did not dismantle them. Whereas in the South, uh, they allowed uh, missionaries uh, who in turn bought in Western education. And the result is the percentage of the population with some kind of Western education is considerably greater in the South than in the North. The rates of impoverishment are very different as well. Uh, most Nigerians, no matter where they live, are poor. Uh, and in fact, using uh, World Bank and International Monetary Fund statistics, the number of Nigerians living in severe poverty, the absolute number, is the largest in the world, uh, larger than, say, in India with six times the population. Nevertheless, in the South, there is slightly less widespread poverty than there is in the North. So you combine all those things together. Um, a more developed economy in the South, higher education uh, levels, and therefore greater resistance uh, to, um, uh, uh, to SARS. So something that we've read from you quite a bit as well has been that you've written about how these movements have become about more than just policing. So can you talk to our listeners a little bit about some of the structural, political, and economic issues that exist within Nigeria? There's an interesting distinction to be made between a government that is regarded as legal and a government that is regarded as legitimate. Uh, the Nigerian government is certainly legal and is so recognized um, by the international community. On the other hand, a very large percentage of Nigerians do not regard the government as legitimate. And in fact, there's some polling data that shows that only about 17% of the population actually uh, thinks of itself as Nigerian. Um, the sense independence, uh, uh, really for almost a generation, 
uh, the country was ruled by one military regime after another, with the restoration of civilian government only in 1999. Um, the um, government governance tends to be unresponsive. It is not transparent and it provides almost no services uh, uh, for, for its population. Indeed, some critics will maintain that essentially the government exists as a means by which uh, Nigerian elites are able to access and divvy up the oil revenue. Um, all the oil in the country belongs to the state. Um, a consequence of that is uh, Nigerians tend to have as little to do with the government uh, as, uh, as they possibly can. Um, of late, uh, in part because of COVID-19 and the economic uh, uh, disruptions that that has caused, um, popular discontent in Nigeria uh, has been on the rise. And I think that directly contributed um, to the morphing of the SARS protests into protests that were much more broad, uh, that were protesting uh, basically the Nigerian political economy. You know, it's fascinating that you bring up that a lot of Nigerians don't think of themselves as Nigerian. And, you know, we know that Nigeria is a very young country. So the young people and the large urban populations that are participating in these protests, how do they find solidarity with each other, if not with a common Nigerian identity? Well, they don't. Uh, and that's, um, uh, that in part is precisely the issue. Um, back to where the, uh, the SARS demonstrations uh, were centered, which is Lagos. Uh, Lagos is predominantly Yoruba. Um, the city of Lagos has an estimate is 22 million people. In other words, it's about three times as large as New York City. Um, uh, the, it's, uh, it's basically huge. I think it's a great mistake uh, to see young people, put that in quotation marks, or the youth bulge, put that in quotation marks, as necessarily having uh, a, a political voice. Um, insofar as Nigerians have a political voice, it's more present in the South than in other, than in other parts of the country. But to see young people as a separate and discrete political force particularly in a country as desperately poor as Nigeria, is, I think, uh, an overread. Ambassador, I want to kind of shift gears here and talk about the response of the international community to these protests. So in particular, you mentioned earlier um, the role of Ni the Nigerian diaspora in terms of bringing visibility via social media to, to these events. So can you talk to us about what has been the response of the international community um, specifically with regards to social media? Um, well, let's talk first of all about the official response. Um, the Trump administration, uh, the, uh, the Johnson uh, government in, uh, in the UK, the French, the African Union, 
uh, all of the normal players have all denounced violence and have called on the Nigerian government to essentially rein in the security services. Uh, that's rhetoric. Uh, I think it makes everybody feel better. I think it has remarkably little impact uh, on what the Nigerian government actually does. In terms of social media, you're talking about something which is very much more diffuse. Um, social media certainly has played a role within Nigeria in the organization uh, of the protests. Social media coming from outside of Nigeria, again, particularly the United States, uh, I think uh, encouraged um, the, uh, uh, the demonstrations. What I have not seen is any particular evidence of the diaspora providing financial support um, uh, for the demonstrators. Um, and of course, um, decentralized demonstrations don't really need uh, very much money. All right. So my next question is, what has been the response of other organizations such as the United Nations or the Red Cross? You also brought up um, the role of the African Union in terms of denouncing these protests. So from what it sounds like, you're not expecting anyone to really do anything beyond just rhetorical statements about a denunciation of violence? That's right. Because, uh, I mean, look at what we're talking about. We're talking about an internal development uh, in a huge country. Now, you mentioned the Red Cross. Uh, Red Cross is interesting. Here I'm talking about the International Committee of the Red Cross, the Red Cross that's uh, that is headquartered in Geneva. Um, President Buhari has said, that the Red Cross will be invited in uh, as part of his program to retrain and reform uh, the Nigerian police. Um, it remains to be seen whether that will happen. Is his an invitation to the Red Cross um, just meant to build credibility as to the re uh, retraining of the SARS police officers, or is there um, a more... I guess humanitarian reason behind it. No, I think um, I think the the approach to the Red Cross is sincere, uh, and the uh, the Red Red Cross has had experience in providing humanitarian training. So I think uh, the the request uh, was essentially positive. It's the sort of thing that might actually over time lead to positive change. Ambassador, I just wanted to close us out with. Two questions about the future prospects for Nigeria. So mm -hmm. the first one, I just wanted to ask you to discuss what is the likelihood that recent pro protests will actually bring about the changes that protesters want? Um, in terms of the restructuring, I'll put it that way, of the police, uh, I think that will proceed. How extensive it will be is very hard for me to foresee. If we're talking about the broader protests against the Nigerian political economy, um, it's a case where these protests 
might be analogous to, say, Sharpville uh, as a protest against apartheid in South Africa. We now see that Sharpville was one of the first steps towards the ending of apartheid in South Africa, but it took 20 years or 30 years for it to happen. Uh, these protests may come to be seen as a first step towards transformation uh, of, uh, uh, of Nigeria. But let's bear in mind, the country already has 205 million people. It's estimated that by 2050, 30 years from now, it will have some 400 million people and will have displaced the United States as the third largest country in the world by population. So you are talking about a huge country in which meaningful um, social, political, and economic change uh, is something which is not easy to do. And when it comes to building a sustainable democracy in Nigeria, how can we balance both the needs of the people with also the serious security concerns, crime issues, and also terrorism um, that the government has been trying to solve? Well, that's just it. Um, uh, uh, that's, uh, uh, that's, that's the heart of the matter. Uh, how do you, how do you initiate reform when in fact security is absent? Uh, and it really is absent. Uh, you have the jihadi movements in the Northeast, which have spread to the Northwest. There's ongoing conflict over land and water use in the Middle Belt. In the oil patch, uh, there is a low-level and ongoing insurrection, mostly you know, because the local people don't think they benefit uh, sufficiently from, from the oil that is found there. I mean, that's the heart of the matter. Uh, how do you go about uh, uh, instituting reforms, uh, even when there's a political will to do so, uh, in the absence of security? No easy answers. Great. Ambassador, thank you so much for coming on our podcast. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of the Hopkins Podcast on Foreign Affairs. We'd like to thank the International Studies Department and the SNF Agora Institute at Johns Hopkins University for making this episode possible. As a reminder, all of the opinions expressed in this episode are those of the hosts and the guests and not of Johns Hopkins University. Remember to follow us on social media at Hopkins POFA on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter for the latest and greatest of Hopkins POFA content. Subscribe on iTunes, give us a follow on Spotify, and leave a comment. We'll see you next time.